The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. There's no question as to what it means. Most certainly not. So, is it not clear that the love described relates to natural and unnatural love? No. Oh. Then, what is the love that dare not speak its name? The love that dare not speak its name in this century is such a great affection of an elder for a younger man as there was between David and Jonathan, such as Plato made the very basis of his philosophy, and such as you may find in the sonnets of Michelangelo and Shakespeare. It is in this century misunderstood, so much misunderstood that it may be described as the love that dare not speak its name. And on account of it, I am placed where I am now. It is beautiful. It is fine. It is the noblest form of affection. There is nothing unnatural about it. It is intellectual. And it repeatedly exists between an elder and a younger man. When the elder has intellect, and the younger man has all the joy, hope, and glamour of life before him. That it should be so, the world does not understand. The world mocks at it, and sometimes puts one in the pillory for it. Listening to Stephen Fry, the man who was born to play Oscar Wilde in the 1997 film Wilde. The speech we just heard is the famous one given by Wilde at his second trial when asked to explain the meaning of, quote, the love that dare not speak its name. When he gave the speech, he was at the height of his popular and literary success, and then he was brought down by a series of three trials, which began with comic energy and ended in nightmare, and led to the horrible final days of one of Victorian England's brightest literary stars. We're looking at the trials of Oscar Wilde, Irish boy wonder, on this special St. Patrick's Day edition of the History of Literature. Let's get started. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. We have a great show today with a sad ending, at least for our subject. It truly is a tragedy. Oscar Wilde made several mistakes along the way, and we'll look at those. But overall, the story is simply tragic. A travesty. One of the most compelling stories in literature. But it's a story of brutal injustice. We have to face these things and learn from them and try to improve. 
Let's start with something a little different. A listener email. This one comes from Michael. Dear sir, he says, I'm currently wrapping up the last two months of my master's in English. I graduate May 2nd. During this time, I have listened to all of your podcasts. Thank you for this podcast. You truly cannot imagine how much more pleasant it has made my long and lonely commutes. Absolutely loved your Fitzgerald versus Hemingway episode. I am a Fitzgerald man myself. I did leave a review way back when grass was green many, many episodes ago, but still want to let you know that my positive review still stands as I continue to listen to your podcast from Puerto Rico under huge gnarled mango trees to the bustling streets of Peru. I have many loves in literature, from Fyodor Dostoevsky, Jorge Luis Borges, all the myriad forms of Sherlock, past and contemporary, and my first love, the Arthurian legend. <laughs> Let me pause here. I just love these emails where these people uh, uh, are see them as kindred spirits, <laughs> where they're walking through life in a kind of literary fog. The email continues, wish you would do a podcast on Arthurian literature, Mallory, Tennyson, T.H. White, etc. Please, please, this would be the only graduation gift I could ever ask for. No pressure. <laughs> oh, I love these emails. Thank you, Michael. Listening under huge gnarled mango trees, people. Please keep these emails coming in, knowing that you're listening on the streets of Peru or in the post office in Sweden. Or up there in the, on the treadmill in snowy Alaska. It is so much fun for me. Of course, this is part of our History of Literature listener giveaway. My thank you to listeners. The prizes I'm sending out. Send me an email with your address. And I'll send you a special literary postcard with a hand-selected quotation. It's at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. J-A-C-K-E, Wilson Author at gmail.com. Here's how I responded. Dear Michael, supplies have still lasted. I will be more than happy to ship one of these out to you. Luckily, I still have one left that I think will be right up your alley. And that's true. Well, see, I don't want to spoil the surprise, but it's uh, it's going to be, I think this will be a hit. Thank you. And then my email continues. Thank you so much for the kind words about the podcast. I take great pleasure in hearing from listeners who tell me about the where's and when's of their listening experience. Now, when I'm at the microphone staring at the blank studio wall, I can imagine I'm talking to Michael, who is listening somewhere under the huge gnarled mango trees or on the bustling streets of Peru, hoping for an episode on the Arthurian legend, which I will try to get to soon. Congratulations on graduating, and best of luck to you in whatever you choose to do next, and thank you again. It's our news theme. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this is Gar coming in late with the news theme. You may be thinking that Gar was late with the news theme. But that's the news theme. The news here is that we got an email from Michael and we sent him out a postcard. But no, Gar is actually not late. We have some news, breaking news. I haven't done this for a while where I comment on a story torn from today's headlines. Well, I have a story here that seems fitting on this day of talking about the trials of Oscar Wilde. It's a recent trial. Here's the headline. Lawyer's pants catch on fire during trial. Okay, 
Okay. The easy joke here is about lying, right? And yes, that's pretty good. You're up there making claims on behalf of your client, and the imposing counsel objects. Objection, Your Honor. On what grounds, says the judge. On the grounds that my opponent's pants are on fire. Maybe maybe down the road, the judge has to instruct the jury. You may not consider liar, liar, pants on fire as a legal standard. But there's more to the story. Because actually, guess what kind of trial this was? A trial for arson. Here's how, here's how the... Here's how it begins. We're not calling Miami defense lawyer Stephen Gutierrez a liar, says Hillary Hansen, the reporter the reporter of the article. But we can say that during a trial on Wednesday afternoon, his pants were on fire. Gutierrez had to run out of the courtroom after his pants began to burn while he was giving closing statements in an arson case, the Miami Herald reports. Why are these, why are these always in Florida? Now, now an arson case, that, that poses a whole new question, doesn't it? Here's our lawyer sitting there next to his client all trial, listening to the prosecution tell a story that this man's client was an arsonist. And the lawyer stands up for his closing argument. I imagine it would go something like, my client would never intentionally light anything on fire. Now excuse me while I go jump into the drinking fountain. Make no, pay no attention to my smoking hot trousers as you watch me sprint from the courtroom. Is that what happened? Hmm. Mr. Gutierrez has another explanation. This is back to the article. Quote, The cause was apparently e-cigarette batteries in his pocket. His client, Claudie Charles, was accused of intentionally setting his car on fire. Gutierrez was in the process of arguing that Charles's car had actually spontaneously combusted when the lawyer's own pants appeared to do just that. End quote. Now, aha, now we have a different view of the defense counsel, a canny, dedicated lawyer. Clarence Darrow, celebrated lawyer in the Scopes Monkey Trial and other famous cases, used to have a great trick. As his opponent gave his closing statement, Darrow would hold his cigar out prominently in full view of the jury. It burned, but he would never tap the ash. The jury would become distracted, watching the ash get longer and longer, waiting for it to drop. Yet it never did. Darrow had run a wire through the cigar so it wouldn't. And for several minutes, his opponent's critical time in front of the jury, their minds were not on what the lawyer was saying. They were on that ash. Stephen Gutierrez might be cut from the same cloth. Here's how I imagine. Ladies, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you have heard about spontaneous combustion. You have heard that it is a myth. That it cannot happen. Well, it can happen, and it does happen. And oh, sweet Jesus, son of a gun. Well, there you go. Just look at my pants. It has happened again right here in front of your eyes. 
Mr. Gutierrez claims that it wasn't staged. But shouldn't it have been? He knew what he was doing. Was he not brave enough to stage it? Okay, spontaneous combustion has a great literary history. Spontaneous, spontaneous human combustion fascinated the Victorians, and it made its way into literature, most famously in Charles Dickens's Bleak House. People just suddenly bursting into flames. Poor crook. Up in smoke. Dickens had a lot of characters to kill off and a lot of readers' hearts to tug. He was always happy to have another tool in his toolbox. Why not spontaneous human combustion? There was an article about it in the early 19th century, or a, a book, actually not an article. It's from 1823 called Medical Jurisprudence, which talked about spontaneous human combustion and stated that there were commonalities among recorded cases. And they included the following characteristics. Number one, the victims are chronic alcoholics. Two, they are usually elderly females. Three, the body is not burned spontaneously, but some lighted substance has come into contact with it. Four, the hands and feet usually fall off. Five, the fire has caused very little damage to combustible things in contact with the body. Six, the combustion of the body has left a residue of greasy fetid ashes, very offensive in odor. It's gruesome. It's actually not that far from what we think today in the cases of suspected spontaneous human combustion. We don't think that alcoholics are more likely than others, except in one respect, which is that maybe they can't move as well. They're immobilized. That's the, that's the theory today. Something else is what lights the human on fire and the the person is either asleep or immobile for some reason, so it appears to be spontaneous human combustion. Forensic scientists today don't think it happens spontaneously. They think there's always some overlooked reason in all these instances. But the Victorians had a different view, at least in stories and novels. And I've actually read that it has some merit to it on a kind of anecdotal, anecdotal level, that it actually did happen more than it might have in other societies because the quality of air was so poor that it would sometimes ignite into, based upon something more than just a usual spark, it would flame up because of the air, the poison in the air. People nearby would catch fire and it would deceive onlookers into thinking that the person had just burst into flames, which seems natural because things usually burn things, not air. Unfortunately for our man's client, getting back to the article, he was convicted of second-degree arson. So that's the news. That's the trial. That's our window into Victorian literature. We're going to combine all of these things together and look at one of the great Victorian trials happening almost at the very end of the Victorian period, which ended in 1901. The trial was in 1895. Oscar Wilde and his three trials coming up. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite 
of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. smarter than most, very smart, in fact. He blazes through school, smarter than his teachers. A whiz at classics, Greek and Latin. He's living in Ireland, and he was born in 1854. His name is Oscar Wilde. Now, most people probably associate Oscar Wilde with a kind of wittiness, a dandiness, a refined or even hyper-refined sense of self. Maybe you think of him as living like an artist or valuing art above life, or, and this might be the most accurate, viewing it as essential to live life to the fullest in every moment and viewing the contemplation of art as the pinnacle of human achievement. That's kind of what he stands for, and he was in many ways his own worst enemy in life and in literary reputation. As we'll see, he had other enemies as well. We'll get to those. But things start out happier. His parents are amazing. This isn't one of those cases of a street urchin who longs for something better and attaches himself to the beauties of art. And it isn't the story of a cold, a cold family, wealthy family, and a kid who longs for something different, longs to rebel against his parents who want him to go into business. This is a boy born into a very artistic and cultured family. His mother wrote poetry which she published under the name Speranza, which means hope in Italian. She adored ancient Greece and Rome and decorated their upper-middle-class home with busts of ancient Greek figures. Oscar's father was a revered surgeon who was a pioneer in medicine and a philanthropist who made it his business to take care of the poor. And in his spare time, he wrote books about archaeology and peasant folklore. I think it's fair to guess that Oscar grew up believing in art, in painting and writing, poetry, sculpture, theater. Believed that they were all worthy endeavors. It was in college where he encountered the works and the, and the persons of William Pater and John Ruskin that he began to develop his views of art as a means of human expression and devotion to art being something on a higher plane altogether. He started in Dublin and won scholarships to Oxford. His Greek was extraordinary, and he started to write poetry and develop a kind of persona, the aesthete. 
Pater and his works had a profound influence on him. His book, Studies in the History of Renaissance, argued that man's sensibility to beauty should be refined above all else. Wilde memorized passages of the book by heart, and later said, that book, that book has had such a strange influence over my life. This is the wild that starts to form now, the one we recognize. He wore his hair long, he carried lilies and sunflowers as he walked about campus, and he decorated his rooms with peacock feathers and blue china. His famous line comes from this period, I find it harder and harder every day to live up to my blue china. It was much mocked. What a dandy. That was the knock against Wilde. How vacuous. You, you believe your life is something that has to live up to your china. There's something in us that rebels against that. It doesn't feel quite harmless. A little bit of self-humor there, but it doesn't feel like harmless self-humor. If Homer Simpson said, every day I find it harder and harder to live up to a jelly donut, we would laugh. But blue china, it seems pretentious, maybe a little snobby. What's the difference? Obviously, there's a class difference, but it also seems like the need for a jelly donut is a human need. Hunger, desire, and that's a need we understand. Homer's weakness, he's bowing to his weakness. He doesn't think he's better than us because he likes jelly donuts. He thinks he's just like us. Only he's maybe more us than we are ourselves, if that makes sense. He's given in to everything we resist. But blue china might be a little different. It's like saying, the rest of you can go get your fingernails dirty at your jobs, with your mundane lives. I'll be here admiring my rare objects, my blue china. Or, and this is why I think it made so many people angry, could read this as saying, I'll be here admiring myself or admiring my blue china. I had a friend who used to say about poets that they would run around saying things like, I'm sorry I wasn't listening to you. I was thinking my own thoughts. You cringe. Who are you to think that you have thoughts better than what I'm saying to you? Nobody else says that. I listen to people all the time. I don't reject what they're saying because I've want to think my own thoughts, why can't you just engage with me like a human being instead of vaulting yourself into this this realm above me? All right, screw you then. You go look at some paintings. I'll go get some other guys and we'll go eat donuts. Let's not forget, though, that Oscar had many sides. Even though he disdained sports, he boxed. <laughs> I love that. And once... When he was attacked by four students, he thrashed them all. He wasn't all flowers and lilies. There was a core of steel there, too. Here's another bit of complexity. Soon after college, he got married. We think of him as being gay, and he clearly was. Like many people, maybe he had to shut that off out of pressures from society. Or maybe it took him a while to figure it out, or he was bisexual. In any case, he was married to his second love. His first love, Florence Balcombe, was his childhood sweetheart. He was hoping to reunite with her, but she got engaged to Bram Stoker, who went on to write Dracula. 
It's crazy. Sometimes his literary history is just completely insane. He later said that the two sweet years that he spent with her were the sweetest of his youth. He barely came back to Ireland again after she broke his heart, only visiting twice, both times briefly, in the rest of his life. James Joyce called Wilde the court jester to England. As is typical for Joyce, this is incisive to the point of cruelty, but it gives you a sense of where Wilde was or how he was viewed. He also said once that he put his talent into his works and his genius into his life. Is that fair? That's what I mean by Wilde being his own worst enemy, at least in terms of his literary reputation. He's kind of like Andy Warhol. Of life story, the sensational popularity, the notoriety, the social and cultural presence of him as a figure tends to overwhelm our judgment of his art. A bit of this we saw in our Dorothy Parker episode as well. For Wilde, the art has lasted even after memories of him as a notorious figure have faded. At the same time, there's this feeling we have even today that his best work was left in the drawing room in conversation, that the life really is the masterpiece. Dr. Johnson is another literary figure kind of like this, more famous for his conversations than for the art he left behind. If so, in Wilde's case, it was a tragedy, as we will see. But what a life in those early years. Wilde wrote the portrait of Dorian Gray, his short novel about a man who falls in love with the beauty in his own portrait. It makes a Faustian bargain. The picture will age, but the man will stay young. Beauty and youth, and there you go. You see what Wilde finds compelling. But again, there are more sides to it. More sides to Wilde. He took a tour of America, a speaking tour, and he drank whiskey with miners in Leadville, Colorado. That is living life. That's not just adoring blue china. It's adoring experience and people. By all accounts, Wilde won them over. He was famous for his wit. Let's hear a few. Let's just run through a few of his famous epigrams. They're so good. Hard to resist. The first one is in the category of resisting. I can resist everything, he said, except temptation. Another one. We are all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. Love that one. Always forgive your enemies. Nothing annoys them so much. <laughs> Experience is simply the name we give our mistakes. Someone talked about the pure and simple truth, and he said the truth is rarely pure and never simple. Once he said, what is a cynic? A man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. To live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people exist. That is all. There's only one thing in the world worse than being talked about, Wilde said, and that is not being talked about. Be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. And to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong romance. The attitude that comes through in these epigrams is a wild trademark. Knowing 
cynical, amused, an incisive view of life and humanity that's surprising and funny all in less than 10 words. It's harder than it looks to pull that off. And here, wild, they poured out of him, wild at his best. This isn't the blue China or the insistence that he is superior to the rest of society for his ability to contemplate art. We are invited in. We are all in the gutter, trying to remind ourselves to look at the stars. We are trying to remember to live. We know how narcissistic we all tend to be if we don't watch ourselves. Wild shares our human foibles with us and boils them down in ways that ring true. So, where were we in Wild's life? Ah, yes. Charming the miners in Colorado. Wilde was living a kind of conventional life at this time, even despite his celebrity and notoriety. He was married and had two kids. A man named Robert Ross, then a young man, a precocious 17-year-old. He's described by Wilde's great biographer, Richard Elman. Elman says that Ross was determined to seduce Wilde. By 1890 or so, when Wilde was in his mid-30s, he had been famous for some time now. His poetry, his novel, The Portrait of Dorian Gray, and his life, with its extremes of style and wit, had made him a sensation. Critics said his work was flawed. Then he found his calling, playwriting. First came a couple of False Starts, and then a play that he wrote in French, Salome, which had a hard time getting produced due to prohibitions against showing biblical characters on stage. And then, in 1892, his comedic plays began. Those launched him into the stratosphere. Lady Windermere's fan, a woman of no importance, and an ideal husband. One each year, 1892, 1893, and 1894. All were enormously popular. The critic Peter Raby said, Wild, with one eye on the dramatic genius of Ibsen and the other on the commercial competition in London's West End, targeted his audience with adroit precision. This is like Wild's early rock star phase when the band is some smash hit albums starting to play sold out arenas. Everything happened very fast. His newfound homosexuality, or anyway, his newfound acting upon it, was only a couple of years old. But suddenly he was a celebrity with money. A man in his life began to take over. And the seedlings of tragedy, many seedlings, for there is no single cause, began to take root. The man's name was Lord Alfred Douglas but everyone called him Bosey. Bosey met Wilde in 1891, and by 1893, just as Wilde's plays were rocketing to stardom, Wilde had developed a passionate infatuation with him. Bosey was younger, a college student, and he was beautiful and reckless. He hated his father. His father was a well-known, and well-known for being irascible, aristocrat called the Marcus of Queensbury. And if you've heard of the boxing rules called the Queensbury rules, this is the man who popularized them. The rules are about fairness and sportsmanship, things like the 10-second count, and 
what to do when a boxer is on the ropes, and so forth. They're really about manly men being manly men. One can only imagine what this boxing aficionado, known for his erratic and violent temper in his personal life, made of his son, Bosey. We do know that rule number two in the Queensbury rules is no hugging. And while it's probably not fair to divorce this from the context of the sport, it's interesting to note that Bosey's father was not a fan of men hugging other men by any means, and, here I'm just speculating, was perhaps not a fan of fathers hugging sons either. He didn't want to hug Bosey in any case, or at least we know the two had horrendous fights. And Bosey, though I think he did genuinely love and care for Wilde, some say he didn't. Some view him as sort of a gold digger going after Wilde's fame and fortune. Wilde was about 20 years older. Rumors are always there. It's easy to see the relationship as having some of that element to it. But I think Bosey genuinely cared for Wilde for most of the time. He destroyed him too, but I think that was because he had a blind spot and his father had given it to him. Bosey, basking in the attention of this famous and doting older man who incidentally was not his father and was in many ways the complete opposite of him, Bosey dragged Wilde into the Victorian underground of gay prostitution. Wilde started seeing young working-class male prostitutes from 1892 on. Wilde would give them gifts and take them to a hotel room. Later, as he looked back after all of his troubles, he described this period to Bosey as, quote, like feasting with panthers. The danger was half the excitement. End quote. The father hated this. I'm sure he hated Bosey for it, but he blamed Wilde. Wilde, the older man. Wilde, the more famous man. Wilde, who had spent years unafraid of how he appeared in public, even cultivating a kind of style that Bosey's father rejected as effete and unmanly. It was, in the Marcus's view, humiliating for his son to be with Wilde the way they consorted around, and so he confronted Wilde and Bosey just as a father today might tell a 30-year-old cocaine dealer to stop hanging around his 12-year-old daughter. Now, I've chosen that analogy for a reason. We can balk at it now. Bosey and Wilde were two consenting adults, and the father was the bad guy, and clearly he was. But given the mores of the time, the father felt like he was within his rights, even that it was his duty to confront Wilde and his son, homosexuality was illegal in the name of sodomy or gross indecency. If you think it's wrong and unnatural and just a bad decision on your son's part, as Bosey's father no doubt did, you look to the bad influences who are exerting themselves over your son, who are leading them astray. It's unfair to Wilde in a couple of respects. Bosey knew what he was doing, first of all. He didn't need Wilde for that, though... Wilde probably made the humiliation more acute by being such a well-known and visible figure. That's not Wilde's fault. But of course, the bigger injustice is just the homophobic nature of the attack. You assume that Oscar and Bosey were engaged in a natural relationship, an expression of love, then there's nothing to excuse. Harming that relationship is what's problematic. That's the moral flaw. 
But that's not the world they lived in. We can regret the choices that were facing Oscar and Bosey, but the choices were clear. What they were doing was dangerous. I don't say that to say that they should have avoided the risks. I'm trying to make sure we understand that they knew how risky things were. But in some ways, they appeared to be blind to those risks. That's the curious part about all this. Others warned them. Others urged them to be discreet, not to stir up Bosey's father, that it wouldn't end well. It's like a a Romeo and Juliet case today. That's what it's called when a 19-year-old is dating a 17-year-old. Maybe they're even in the same class. Both seniors in high school say, and the 17-year-old's mother disapproves. You can say she's ridiculous and on her moral high horse and that she's in the wrong and she doesn't accept reality. She doesn't accept that her daughter has grown up. All of that may be true, but she has statutory rape laws on her side. And if she's going to call the police, both of those kids can be in a world of trouble. It's something to be ready for. Wild tried. He met with Bosey's father several times, and at least the first time went well. They had cigars and liqueurs, and Bosey's father left mollified that Wilde's interest was purely intellectual, or at least intellectual enough to be more or less pure. That didn't last long. Wilde was too out there, too exposed, too visible. Bosey's father came charging to Wilde's house, barged in without an appointment, screamed at him, I do not say that you are at it, but you look it and pose at it, which is just as bad. And if I catch you and my son again in any public restaurant, I will thrash you. And wild, witty wild, unable to shut it off, replied, I don't know what the Queensberry rules are, but the Oscar Wilde rule is to shoot on sight. Probably not the right color flag to wave in front of the bull but it got worse. You reptile, Bosey's father wrote to his son. You are no son of mine, and I never thought you were. Bosey said things like, What a funny little man you are, he wrote in a telegram to his father. And again, he wrote, If O.W. was to prosecute you in the criminal courts for libel, you would get seven years penal servitude for your outrageous libels. Bosey's father, Queensberry, told hotel managers and restaurant owners that if they let Wilde and Bosey into their establishments, he'd beat them. And then he charged around London with a prize fighter, just to show he meant it. This is the part of the story that gets crazy. Like the last sequence in Goodfellas, where the, the choppers are chasing you and you're sweaty and running and everything happens with horrible speed. At the end of 1894, Wilde writes his play, probably his masterpiece, The Importance of Being Earnest. It is a beautiful and mature play in which two protagonists act differently in town and country, which allows them to escape society's restrictions. It was performed in February 1895, and it was an immediate sensation, an enormous hit. Everyone recognized it. The man who played Algernon said, In my 53 years of acting, I never remember a greater triumph than that first night when the importance of being earnest was first shown. Imagine 
what this would be like for Oscar, the man who prized beauty and art above all else, with the stage lights twinkling, and actors reciting his words, and the audience captivated by it all, that blend of drama and comedy that every writer aspires to. To know that you could do that. Comic writers wish they could get laughs like that. Dramatists wish they could get that much poignancy and character revelation. And Wilde, madly in love and at the peak of his creative powers, his celebrity finally condoned by his artistic triumph, must have felt like he was the king of the only kingdom he ever cared about. And yet, outside the theater, his lover's father paced around. His plan was to disrupt the play and throw rotten vegetables on the stage. Someone tipped off security. They didn't let him in. Apparently he stalked around for three hours, finally left chattering, whatever that is. In a fury, one imagines, things were coming to a peak. Fifteen weeks later, this is what I mean by the choppers chasing you, fifteen weeks after this, Wilde would be in prison and his life would never be the same. It started with a card, a calling card. Bosie's father left it for Wilde and it said, For Oscar Wilde, posing sodomite. Except it didn't quite say sodomite, it said somdomite can't get over that detail. You can see a picture of the card on the internet. Somdomite with an M. Was he that ignorant or enraged when he wrote that? Did Wilde laugh bitterly at the misspelling? Somdomite? Incredible. And here we can now start tracking the mistakes that Wilde and Bosey made I'm blaming Bosey's homophobic father and the homophobic laws of Britain at the time. They are the villains, there's no question. But given that landscape, the rigged rules of a rigged game, Oscar and Bosey made several mistakes. They played that rigged game poorly. It's an awful story, and it's hard to bear. There were so many ways it it should have turned out differently, and it didn't. Here's mistake number one. Bosey sees the card and encourages Wilde to sue Bosey's father for libel. The note was a public accusation that Wilde had committed the crime of sodomy, after all, or at least posed it. Think of the language in the card. For Oscar Wilde, posing sodomite. Bosey should have known better, and Wilde especially should have seen that Bosey's judgment was clouded by his hatred for his father but they believed they were in the right. Morally, I agree with them, but tactically, no, 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 no. They didn't think they were taking a stand. They thought they would win. That was their mistake. They thought they, Bosey's father had no proof, had no evidence. Their friends knew differently. Their friends begged them not to do it, begged them not to sue him for libel. Their friends saw what Bosey and Oscar didn't, that sympathy might have been on their side, but the law and the facts weren't. Given the nature of the case, the only thing Queensberry could do to defend himself against the libel 
the charges of libel, is to prove that the statement was true. Bosey thought he could, couldn't do it, that all he had was innuendo and rumor. But Bosey and Oscar were so visible. There were all kinds of witnesses ready to go. All those working-class prostitutes, easy to round up. Willing to testify, threatened with prosecution unless they testified. It wasn't just rumor. Bosey also thought, here's another big mistake, Bosey thought he could carry the day by testifying as to what a monster his father was, how cruel he'd been. What a philistine. But that's not how the law works. There's character evidence wasn't admissible in a trial about libel. His father wasn't on trial for being a horrible father. He was on trial for saying that Wilde was a posing sodomite. That was it. Every lawyer in the world sees what Bosey didn't. There are two defenses. You can show that Wilde was actually a sodomite, a gay. And even if you don't get that, you can just show that he posed as one. That's enough to make the statement true. Lawyers told Wilde this. His lawyers, some of the finest in London, told him, you're suing someone and inviting him to put on a defense that will essentially be showing that you violated the laws of England, the criminal laws. Don't go down this path. It won't end well. Lawyers said they couldn't take the case if there was any truth to it, and Wilde assured them that there was not. Friends urged Wilde to drop the suit, but Wilde and Bosey had formed a different view. The view that this was the only way to stop Bosey's father from interfering with Bosey's life. And they ignored the lawyers and viewed their friends, who were trying to help them, as disloyal. Everyone told Wilde not to sue Queensberry, and yet he did. All the mistakes of this trial. Wilde seemed unable to turn off his wit and affectation. He lied about his age. He said he was 39 when he was actually 41. Why? Why would you do that? The defense lawyer seized upon it. If you're posing about this, willing to lie about it in court, what else are you posing about? Listen to how Wilde's lawyer talked about his letters. There was plenty of innuendo in them. One strategy might have been to say, what's wrong with expressing love? Isn't that the response that Wilde's lawyer might have taken? What's wrong with expressing love? Doesn't this world need more affection? Aren't these two grown-ups? Isn't this a positive, healthy emotion? Instead, he said, it must be remembered that Oscar Wilde is a poet, and the letter should be read as the expression of true poetic feeling and with no relation whatever to the hateful and repulsive suggestions put to it in the plea in this case. Okay, do you hear the problem there? Wilde's lawyer, Wilde's lawyer, is saying that homosexuality is hateful and repulsive. What kind of message is that to send to the jury? How is that conditioning them to set him free? The defense lawyer set him free. We're still in the trial for libel. This is the case where Wilde is suing Queensberry. But it's going to take a turn. The defense lawyer 
This is Queensbury's lawyer also pointed out the morally questionable aspects of Wilde's art. Plenty of writings about love of men or younger men. What about that? Wilde didn't help himself when he responded that he didn't think works of art were capable of being moral or immoral, but only well-made or poorly made. It's a great answer for the drawing room or for the preface to a poem, an essay. It's not as good when you're trying not to be viewed as a poser. He added that only brutes and illiterates whose views on art are incalculably stupid would think that art had any kind of morality. Wilde's own professor, the great, or his tutor, the great Ruskin, one of his influences, had a different view. He had said that art should have morality. Wilde followed him for a time, worked with him, putting flowers along the side of the road. That was artistic, had a purpose, a moral purpose, beautification, something that needed it, other morality as well in Ruskin's view. And here's Wilde on trial, taking a view that might insult members of the jury, calling them Philistines. Wilde also admitted that he enjoyed the society of young men and lavished gifts on them. And then, this was probably the biggest mistake of this trial, other than the decision to bring the trial to sue to begin with. Wilde was asked whether he had ever kissed a certain servant boy. Every defense lawyer in the world tells their client, no means no, period. If the answer is no, say no and stop talking. Wilde, this example would be a great example to use with your clients, all you defense lawyers out there. Because Wilde didn't say, no, I never kissed that boy, that young man. He said, oh dear no, he was a particularly plain boy, unfortunately ugly. I pitied him for it. That's a no that is essentially saying yes. Remember that Wilde is trying to say that he's not homosexual, that he's not engaged in homosexual conduct does not even pose at it. And here he is telling the jury that he didn't kiss a boy and that of course he didn't. He remembers it very well and knows it for a fact because the boy was not good looking. It's a denial that wins a battle and loses a war, if it even wins a battle. It was over. In the opening speech, the defense lawyer announced that he had located several male prostitutes who would testify that they'd had sex with Wilde. Wilde dropped the prosecution, agreed to settle on charges that he was a poser, because that's not illegal, that's not criminal. He accepted that. He dropped the charges, but it was too late. Queensbury was found not guilty. Wilde had to pay Queensbury's legal fees, which wiped out his fortune. And then... His real problems began. When I think of the first trial and Wilde's performance, I'm reminded of those artists who are bipolar and faced with possible treatment. The offer of, you can go on medication. And the artist worries, is this side of me, this crazy side, or if that's not the right word, this manic side, this energy, this creativity, what if I shut that off? 
what will it do to my art? Virginia Woolf wrestled with this, many others too. Drug addicts might face the same thing. How can I stop? What will it mean for my art? Maybe they decide not to change, decide that they can't or don't want to. I think of Wilde as being a little like that. Everything that made him great threatened him at that trial. His defiance, his willingness to shock, his wit. What's the opposite of posing? Being humble. Being retiring. And yet, Wilde couldn't be that. At least not yet. He was still riding the crest of his fame, still rising, still committed to his ideals. Still human, in other words. Still Oscar Wilde. His devotion to beauty and to a set of beliefs into how one should live, he couldn't give that up, not yet. But soon he would have to. Soon enough it would be drummed out of him. The theatrical world had Oscar Wilde, playwright of genius, on a pedestal, even higher than that, in the stratosphere, in the firmament. But society, moral, prudish, religiously righteous, legal society, had its claws in Oscar Wilde, and they would be dragging him back down, pulling him apart like demons do, and tossing his carcass into the ditch. The one disgraceful, unpardonable, and to all time contemptible action of my life, Wilde later wrote, was my allowing myself to be forced into appealing to society for help and protection. Of course, once I had put into motion the forces of society, society turned on me and said, Have you been living all this time in defiance of my laws? And do you now appeal to those laws for protection? You shall have those laws exercised to the full. After the first trial and all the evidence of sodomy and gross indecency and the huge scandalous publicity that came with it, a warrant was applied for against Wilde. The court adjourned for an hour and a half. Why? Why would the magistrate do this? criminal case is about to be brought against Wilde, and the court adjourns. We're going to adjourn for an hour and a half before we issue this warrant. Presumably, it was to give Wilde time to escape from England. He'd get on the train, get down, take a boat to France. Wilde's friends sought him out and urged him to leave. You need to get to France, where you'll be free. He was doomed. He could escape. But inaction had set in. Wilde couldn't leave. He dithered, not sure what to do. A broken man, but putting on a brave face. He was a celebrity who had it all and was stunned by the sudden turn of events. The train has gone, he said at last. It is too late. There's so many brilliant expressions that have been handed down, all of Wilde's sparkling wit. Seems like everything he said was full of, just crackled with this energy and humor. There's something indescribably sad about how plain those sentences are. He's humbled. He's crushed. The train has gone. It is too late. The rocket has returned to earth.
Wilde was described by a journalist who announced that the warrant was being served as having gone, quote, very gray in the face. He was sitting quietly in his chair, drinking glass after glass of hock and seltzer. Wilde's name was being removed from the ads and the playbills at the St. James Theater, where the importance of being earnest was still being performed through admiring crowds. He entered the second trial more soberly. This was a criminal trial against him. The public, or a large section of it at least, was calling for blood, and Wilde was different. He knew. We didn't hear the kind of exchanges that the first trial had had. It was, here's an exchange. Wilde was read a letter, a suggestive letter that he'd written to Bosey. And he was asked in the first trial, was it an ordinary letter? And Wilde said, certainly not. It was a beautiful letter. Apart from art, he was asked, I cannot answer any questions apart from art, Wilde had said. It was on and on like that. But in the second trial, he answered questions, yes and no. He was facing 25 counts of gross indecency and conspiracy to commit gross indecency. The prosecution brought in all of the young male witnesses to testify how they helped Wilde act out his sexual fantasies. They expressed shame and remorse about their own actions. And Wilde seemed, well, what would you feel? Think about how things have turned. It's one thing to feel that your love for Bosey has been misunderstood that you've been attacked by a father who should have loved Bozy and under, tried, his, tried his best to understand him, feel like you've been wronged, sort of a family squabble that's carried out, spilled into society, and it's another to think that you've been entangled with 25 young men who now regret what they did with you. Let me pause here and say that the regret of the men, and I'm going to Assume that they were all of the age of consent, because that's a bit of line drawing for me. Assuming that to be the case, how would it be for Wilde to sit there? But it's problematic, isn't it? Of course those men regret it now. They're sitting in court, hissed at by onlookers, jeered at in disgrace, told that they've been participants in a crime, watching a man who's been labeled in advance alleged to be a criminal. Does that mean a moral wrong had been committed? It was illegal, but was it immoral? I don't know enough about those relationships to say, other than that maybe the regret Wilde felt was misplaced, manufactured by society and its laws. The dramatic highlight of the second trial comes in the second clip that we played at the beginning. I think we should listen to that again. Wilde has just been asked to explain the phrase, the love that dare not speak its name. It's not just same-sex love. It's an older and a younger man. And we might want to go all the way back to Wilde's mother and her love for ancient Greeks, the busts that they had in their house. Wilde had been steeped in the classics. And in the classics, there's indeed a freedom regarding the type of relationship that if you're feeling an inclination for it, must be very liberating. It must help you to feel that this is natural and that the layers of morality that have repressed this feeling is the problem, that that's the act of oppression. I want to be very clear that I'm not taking a position here except to say that everything Wilde says 
requires, at least for me, that the young man be of an age and in a position to freely consent. Both men do. Both men need to consent. That's the nature of sexual relationships. And assuming that to be the case, I'll keep an open mind. Here's Wilde's description. Remember, this is in a trial where he's mainly responded with one or two word answers. There's no question as to what it means. Most certainly not. So, is it not clear that the love described relates to natural and unnatural love? No. Oh. Then, what is the love that dare not speak its name? The love that dare not speak its name in this century is such a great affection of an elder for a younger man as there was between David and Jonathan, such as Plato made the very basis of his philosophy, and such as you may find in the sonnets of Michelangelo and Shakespeare. It is in this century misunderstood. So much misunderstood that it may be described as the love that dare not speak its name. And on account of it, I am placed where I am now. It is beautiful. It is fine. It is the noblest form of affection. There is nothing unnatural about it. It is intellectual. And it repeatedly exists between an elder and a younger man. When the elder has intellect, and the younger man has all the joy, hope, and glamour of life before him. That it should be so, the world does not understand. The world mocks at it, and sometimes puts one in the pillory for it. Just miserable thinking about how he was treated. Yes, he made mistakes, but this great man lived in the wrong era, maybe. Everything that was great about him was also what made him doomed, but not quite yet. That speech we just heard was the the one place where he roused himself during the second trial. He spoke with his typical eloquence. Maybe it's what led to his acquittal. The jury acquitted him on one charge and could not reach a verdict on the rest. And after that, even Queensbury's attorney in the first trial, the one who had done so much to expose Wilde as he defended his own client, urged the government to stop. Can you not let up on this fellow now? He said. But no, the government needed to make an example out of Wilde. They had to show that they were tough on gay men. Why? Why is that? Some have speculated that the Prime Minister had been suspected of having had a homosexual affair when he was Foreign Minister. And guess what? This gets a little crazy. (laughs) This, This story takes a real turn here. 
the lover that the prime minister was suspected to have taken was Bosie's brother, one of Queensbury's other sons, Francis, who was also good-looking like Bosie, and who died in a hunting accident that was thought to be a suicide just before Queensbury went on the rampage against Bosie and Wilde. Is that why he's so relentless? That's our picture now of Queensbury. If this is true, I don't think it's been proven. But an incredible angle on Queensbury. He's a boxer, a brute, an aggressive man's man. One of his sons is rumored to have a homosexual affair with the foreign minister, and then the son commits suicide. And in the father's grief, he sees his other son, Bosey, taking up with Oscar Wilde. It's an incredible story. There are some letters that are a little ambiguous that suggest that this is what happened. Queensberry had threatened to expose the prime minister and his affair, his former affair, if the prime minister didn't aggressively prosecute Wilde. We don't know for sure if that happened, but here's one thing we do know. For two months, the Prime Minister suffered from serious depression and insomnia. And then, after Wilde was finally convicted in the third trial, it all went away. It's a bit speculative, but something drove the government hard. The third trial began, weaker witnesses were dropped, the prosecution was more vicious in denouncing Wilde, and Wilde was convicted and sent to prison. His time in prison, he spent two years in various prisons, two years of hard labor, was awful. When he was transferred between prisons, a kind of mob formed and spit at him. After he was released, he lived the rest of his life in France, destitute. And the rest of his life was not a long period. He died a little more than two years later, at age 46. In the David Hare play, The Judas Kiss, it suggested that Bosie and Wilde had a life together briefly in Europe after Wilde got out. Wilde is chastened following his years in prison. Bosie whines and pouts and ultimately declares that his mother has paid him a handsome sum to leave Wilde forever. And he implies that his homosexuality was perhaps always a deception. If that's true, well... I said that Wilde was his own worst enemy, but clearly that was wrong. Hare's play makes it look like Wilde is one of his one of his own enemies. The police are bearing down on Wilde, handcuffs at the ready, and Wilde insists on eating lobster with dauphinoise potatoes, whatever those are, smothered in sauce, when he should be fleeing to France. He in Hare's play Wilde scoffs at the books that his friend packed for him, for the flight his friend is urging him to take. Dickens, he says, Egad, I shall not run down the hole they have dug for me. All this arrogance, this blindness to reality, and we in the audience beg the great Oscar Wilde to wake up, to set aside his arrogance, to see clearly the hatred that is headed his way and the damage that it will do. Stop worrying about your blue china. Worry about the blue uniforms about to break down your door. 
Uh, in the cliched sense, it's easy to say Wilde was his own worst enemy, but if we take that literally, we know it's not true. He had many enemies. Bosey may have been one. Bosey's father, certainly. And all the cowards and hypocrites who demanded that he pay a price that they themselves wouldn't have paid. But above all, he had a generic, amorphous enemy. An enemy formed of prejudice and misunderstanding and cruelty. Lack of empathy. He had a society that didn't know what to do with him. So they chose to celebrate him for a while. And then they chose to destroy him. Earlier this year, on January 31st, 2017, Oscar Wilde was pardoned by Queen Elizabeth II, along with 50,000 other men who'd been convicted for crimes related to homosexuality. We're moving toward justice, I suppose. It didn't help Oscar, but hopefully, let's hope his example and our remembrance of it will help others. And let's let Wilde have the last word. Here's what he wrote looking back at his trials. All trials are trials for one's life, just as all sentences are sentences of death. And three times I have been tried. The first time I left the box to be arrested. The second time to be led back to the house of detention. And the third time to pass into prison for two years. Society as we have constituted it will have no place for me has none to offer, but nature, whose sweet rains fall on just and unjust alike, will have clefts in the rocks where I may hide, and secret valleys, in whose silence I may weep undisturbed. She will hang with stars, so that I may walk abroad in the darkness without stumbling, and send the wind over my footprints, so that none may track me to my hurt. She will cleanse me in great waters and with bitter herbs make me whole. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Oscar Wilde for his genius and his courage. Happy St. Patrick's Day, everyone. I hope you are enjoying the spring. I'm a little overwhelmed, as I usually am during spring, or in one of the other seasons, actually. (laughs) As long as it's a season, you can find me overwhelmed. Especially when the seasons turn. There's a lot to do, a lot to think about, and everything around you is changing. But these conversations I have with you help a lot to keep me grounded. I hope they provide you some enjoyment as well. It sounds a little dark. I don't mean to be dark. Spring is here. Trees are starting to bud. Even though it's also still snowing at times. Global weirding, they call it. Let's try to hang on together, shall we? And do our best. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.